Hello everyone, this is Shannon Morgan and you are listening to episode 6 of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds including mental health, trauma, addiction and more. I am not a counselor and this podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy, more like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with both adults and children, I share my lived experience with mental illness, trauma, and addiction in order to connect with clients and help them see that they are not alone. Helping them to share their own story, set goals, build hope, and live more self-directed, purpose-filled lives. And that is the spirit that I'm bringing to this podcast show. The website for Sound Mind is soundmindpodcast.com. There you will find social networks, learn more about guests and where you can leave a comment or send me an email and I would love to hear from you especially if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you have a reaction to the episode. Now, on to today's guest. Maelstrom is a 43-year-old non-binary queer person from Boise, Idaho, who now lives in Seattle, where they moved in 2019. They came out as non-binary gender fluid in early 2019, changed their name in 2020, and they now use the pronouns they, them. They were raised in an abusive household where they were kicked out onto the street when they were 18. Maelstrom went through two quick marriages by the time they were 28, culminating in severe alcohol abuse and near suicide. It was at this time that Maelstrom started doing stand-up comedy, which they eventually used as the platform for the social activism that is now a part of their daily life. Mental health has always been a part of their journey, and it's only been recently that they've had the opportunity to receive adequate health care for it. Now, with that being said, let's listen to the second installment of my interview with Maelstrom. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You you identify as gender fluid slash non-binary queer person yeah. who uses the pronoun they, them. Can you kind of explain to somebody who's uh, completely unfamiliar what that means? Okay. There is a bunch of language in here, so I'm going to try to simplify it as much as possible. Uh, cool. For the beginning, we know that sex and gender are two different things. Um, yes. Over almost 2% of all the population is intersex. Only 1.5 of the population is ginger. So there's actually less gingers and their intersex people. And that doesn't even relate to your gender. Now, your gender is an expression which is culturally influenced. And we know that because of every culture we've ever studied. So Mm -hmm. as cultures develop, they use different words to mean different things. So if we look at it purely from a colonizer sort of way, Because if we actually look at the way a lot of tribes and other cultures look at this, they don't view gender a lot the same way we do through the lens in the West. Like it's not just an either or. There's a lot of people all over the world who've had multiple genders, sometimes four or five. Wow. Yeah. And in some cultures, some of these genders are considered holy or they would be attached to the priesthood. Now, in our culture... We struggle with nuance. So there's a big difficulty in that most people believe that gender and sex are just intrinsically connected and are static your whole life. And what we have found is there's a lot of people who don't necessarily fall into two categories so easily. And this happens to people just during their life. Some people feel this way their whole time, their whole life. And some people feel like the gender they were told to express growing up doesn't actually fit how they feel inside. And that's what we call 
trans people. Mm-hmm. And once again, this is a binary system only viewed through the West. Now, it's kind of binary the way we look at it. So you are either cis, which is spelled C-I-S, which is somebody who identifies with their gender and sex kind of have that, what we would call a match, but I don't know if the language really fits anymore. And then a trans person is someone who doesn't feel that way. So on the doesn't category, you're probably already familiar with binary trans people. So that's a trans woman. Oh, trans woman is someone whose sex would have been, would have been their gender, would have been, would have been uh, attributed to them at birth, would have been a male. And then at some point they said no. And then they're a woman. Now, there is a lot of gray area in here. And it really comes down to the individual and how you feel. Some people feel like a trans woman might feel she had always been a woman. And some people do feel this way from childhood. This is where a lot of arguments come up. Now, I'm non-binary, which means I don't fit in either category. Mm -hmm. So in Western culture, that's a very small just a very small amount of people in my age group. But as you look down through the Zoomers and the young people, they have had access to all this gender conversation for years now. And so you're seeing a much wider rainbow of identifications and classifications and a lot of language is getting worked through and created. I'll be honest with you. When I was preparing for this interview, I went and asked my daughter, I'm like, okay, I think this is what non-binary means, but can you help me understand it? And can you, can you help me make sure I say the right thing so that I'm respectful of, you know, your identity? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really nervous. I was, I was afraid I was going to mess it up and say the wrong thing. This, I mean, it's a kind of a side thing, but generally speaking, as is always, uh, and mostly speaking for myself, if you misgender somebody and somebody corrects you, the, the, the best thing to do is say thank you and move on. We don't mm-hmm. need to create an awkward space for that trans person because that awkwardness happens to them all the time. So we just want to go, oh, okay, what comes out of your mouth is how you see that person in your heart. So where it becomes an insult is if I tell you that I want you to call me a certain thing and then you just never do, then it's clear that you don't care how I feel about that. And that's where that insult Mm -hmm. comes from. Now, there is a lot more, like just in general speaking, uh, people are out and about and they get recognized maybe for being trans. This is just a thing that happens, especially if you go through puberty, uh, you start taking on hormonal changes. And a lot of trans people even get surgeries to have these things removed but also being on uh, hormones can actually change how your body manifests. You can grow, uh, your body already has the coding for breasts. It's just that if you're born with a male sex, your body doesn't generate that with its hormones. But if you start taking uh, enough uh, estrogen, that can actually just develop on its own. Mm-hmm. Now, non-binary people, if you think about it as an umbrella, the big umbrella is trans. And underneath that, you have binary trans people and non-binary. Now, once we look into the non-binary section, this is where it gets really messy because there's a lot of different ways to fit into this box. Plus, there's people who are agender, which don't feel like they have a gender, who get put in this box, but really they just don't feel like they're on the same field. Mm -hmm. So non-binary people is a pretty wide thing. The subtype that I use is gender fluid. This is also used differently by different people. I generally view it as I experience facets of gender at different rates in places determined upon my environment, who I'm around and how I feel. And it 
doesn't stay the same. So you can see everything changes, my body language, my voice, uh, a lot of the ways that I, I'm just very sensitive to my environment. And as I have been growing older, I have just been expressing more of these facets of my personality naturally. You can go back mm-hmm. through like uh, photographs and you'll see me start to like, I grew my hair out real long. I had pigtails. I, uh, had, I still wear fingernail polish. I started wearing like skirts and things just got added. And then at a certain point, I just realized that the gender thing uh, wasn't working for me. And I just switched over. So did this happen? Did you, were you small when you realized this or started to have these expressions of gender or is it more that later in life you're more, more, you felt more safe to express them? What you'll find is frequent. And this is true with me. This is frequent with a lot of older trans people because we can look back on our lives and you could, you can consider this wasn't part of the dialogue in the eighties, even if I thought something, there was no way that as a kid in 1984, I'd yeah. been able to explore that. Uh, I, uh, if looking back, the games that I chose to play, the friends that I choose to have, like in elementary school, when a lot of the boys were out there chasing each other around and throwing sports, I was playing uh, jump rope with the girls or Foursquare. So like my, mm-hmm. my energy just fit better in that space. And even to this day, I actually do a much better with uh, femmes, just generally speaking. But uh, you'll see that expression sometimes uh, showed up when I talk to people about my past. So now that I've come out, my ex-wife says one of the reasons she liked me and we met back at the beginning of the century was that I had feminine traits. Mm -hmm. Now she didn't tell me this until after I came out because she probably didn't want to like hurt my feelings. Sure. So I wouldn't even have said that, but somebody else noticed it and reported it later. (laughs) (laughs) So has, has this journey that you've been on influenced your mental health at all or has it strengthened it? You know, I've actually thought about this a lot. There's actually a really high percentage of people who are neurodivergent within the trans and non-binary groups. Well, final thing, not everybody that's non-binary identifies as trans. It's people mm-hmm. get to pick their labels. That's the rest of that. So uh, I would say that I don't think I would have been able to achieve this point unless I had already gone through a lot of the mental health journey. But also, like, there's no control group. I don't know what I would have done in another universe. But what happened in this one is I dealt with a lot of stuff and then I dealt with a lot of stuff. And then as I got closer to my 40s, a lot of the stuff that was affecting me when I was younger didn't have the same power. And uh, I would ended up in some relationships because my last serious relationship, I was with this woman for uh, four and a half years. And she was very open to letting me do whatever I want. Like, she never said or did anything. And I can be pretty extreme. So that was good having this space where it wasn't a problem. A lot of people are with partners who are not as uh, flexible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was just really helpful. And then it just worked out really well. Like I actually ended that relationship. And then I went through that whole rubber band effect where a lot of things that would have happened kind of all snapped into reality at the same time while I was going through the process of the breakup, moving out of state, changing my name, all that kind of stuff came through this. But being non-binary was one of the first things. I think it happened the month after. Oh, wow. Yeah, I started chatting with some friends in chat. I was like, hey, I think I want to start using they, them uh, thing, like uh, pronouns. And they were like, sure. Like, well, we'll just start using them in chat. And then like the next day I was like, yeah, this is fine. (laughs) Yeah, this is me. I like it. And it's gender itself. And this is 
kind of a lot of my personal feeling. I feel like your expression of your gender can change. Like if you have never felt a certain way about yourself and then find yourself feeling a different way, that's fine. Humans are messy. So like if six years from now, I feel like identifying differently, that's cool. Like I'm not judgmental about that when other people do it. And Mm -hmm. I have actually found that this process is good for the mental health in that the reason I believe that there's a lot of trans people that are neurodivergent is if you're neurodivergent, you have to get really intimate with how your brain works. Mm-hmm. Like you really have to get your fingers dirty inside your skull and figure out what makes you tick. And I feel like a lot of people going through that journey also have to deal with everything else. That's not, I don't have any evidence of that. It just feels like that when you talk with, because there's so many young neurodivergent people who are also in the trans community. Like it's just Mm -hmm. everywhere because also we're really accepting. All of us are a little bit different in how we express ourselves and how we define ourselves. And that makes you just naturally more accepting. So instead instead of worried about pronouns, I just ask if we're going to talk more than a few minutes or I don't know, I'll just ask you. It's not like, it's not even awkward. It's like, Hey, what's your pronouns? And they'll be like, Oh, I use this, this. And they'll be like, all right, cool. And then you just go forward. It's, it takes like no time. Yeah, I do that when I'm dealing, when I'm um, around my, my daughter's friends or if I'm going to meet new people at her school or something, I'll ask them because her she has a lot of friends who are all over the spectrum of gender and identity and sex, sexual identity. And so I'm learning a whole lot. I thought I was woke, but I'm so far from woke. It's not even funny. Uh, there's just so much to learn. And it's really exciting to me because it's like, cool, like more um, variety, more people, like more people living their lives and being who they are like there's nothing wrong with that it's a it's a beautiful thing from my perspective mm-hmm. so i it's I, I always worry about saying the wrong thing but then i know that um they know that i'm not coming from a, a bad place that i mean well and so no one's ever taken offense to anything i've said when i have mislabeled them or you know they've just been like hey like you said like this is what it is i'm like oh sorry and we move on it's no big deal yeah generally speaking nobody wants to deal with microaggressions and it's, it can be difficult to tell if it's on purpose or an accident. But also, there's also a lot of people who are more sensitive to others because they have more trauma around gender than I do. My process was relatively healthy. I came out as an adult. I was in my own space. I was safe. Like, if you're coming out as a teenager in an unhealthy environment, like, maybe they're super religious and their religion doesn't believe that you can do that. Or, you know, or they just don't like the idea of accepting you as a man all of a sudden, mm-hmm. because in their mind, and this is an argument you see online, they actually want to go through the grieving process, but for the, because they feel like they lost their daughter, but for their son, who's been there all along, it feels like their parents are, uh, they don't see them as the same person. And that, yeah. that process is extremely harmful. And it's really difficult to get families on board with trying to understand that this is suicide prevention. Trans kids mm-hmm. kill themselves at a disturbingly higher rate than everybody else. And Mm -hmm. the more points of intersectional, um, the more uh, groups you belong to that have been marginalized, the greater the odds that bad things will happen to you. So if you're a trans woman of color at any age, you are in one of the highest risk categories for every violent action. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. More, more subject to abuse. There's all kinds of categories that are horrible. Right. And you can easily imagine if somebody is, is, has to deal just daily with more trauma 
than I do because I'm in a pretty safe body and space and I'm even in Seattle. So I mean, come on, uh, it, mm. they might be more sensitive. So if you call this, this man, if you call him, she, because he doesn't necessarily look like what you would consider a man to look like, that can be really painful to him because he's gone on this whole journey and dealt with all these fights and he's got all these scars and he just wants to be accepted. And your little reminder that he isn't seen that way could really really stick it in his heart. And that's bad, which is why we care so much is we don't want people to have that pain. Yeah. The, especially in Idaho, because there's like an active assault on trans people. They just passed a law that, that you have to prove your gender in order to play sports and it's being challenged in the, up the court. I think it's up, almost up to the Supreme court now, but um, yeah, it, it those are overt aggression. I wanted to kind of define some of the things you were saying because you've also used microaggression and that's that's something like where someone will call a, a trans person he instead of she on purpose because they know it hurts them. Right. Mm -hmm. Microaggressions are more popular in dealing with race because people do a lot of microaggressions with race. But with trans people, it's pretty subtle and there's a lot I might not even notice because it's not pointed at me. Like I'm non-binary, but I'm six foot tall. I have facial hair. People always default to me, to calling me sir or him. So I know that my journey is going to be getting misgendered forever. And I don't, and that's just my journey. There are a lot of people and you don't even have to, because to be honest, what you look like also doesn't have anything to do with your gender. You can be a tomboy and a trans man. Like, uh, or in a trans girl, like you can do that. Like you could be, a, mm -hmm. yeah, like that could just be your life. Like there really isn't a thing. You don't have to get any surgeries. Transitioning means different things to different people. You don't have to change anything about yourself. If you, if you want to be a woman, that's one of the, one of the things you know that you're a woman is you want to be one. So if you're a trans woman, you don't have to do anything. You can just tell you, you just admit to yourself, Oh, I guess I'm a woman. And then you could just live your life like that. You don't have to change anything, but you know, a lot of people do, which, you know, I mean, for someone in my condition and a lot of people in the non-binary community, when we talk to each other, we basically treat gender like a joke because the, we don't have a baseline anymore. You know, like most non-binary people like myself, even many of us even change our names into non-gendered names. You'll see a lot of people named brick or like a verb, you know, like, and that's just because mm -hmm. we're embracing the idea really hard of not belonging on either side of the scale. So trans people do manifest uh, their gender in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's kind of like if you went to 31 flavors and there were only two flavors that you could have. Right. And then ever, and then the other person says, well, I want it, I want strawberry. And then another person says, well, I want strawberry, but I want it in a smoothie. You know, that that's diverging from what's typical and, and, and claiming what they want where everyone else is like, yeah, but this is what we've always done. And this is what we're used to. And like, well, it's time to open our eyes to it's just more flavors. I, 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 and you're always, that conversation has just always been going on where there are people who want things to change and people who don't. And a lot of it's generational because every generation of the world is just different and nobody seems to accept that. It's just part of life. Yeah. I swear my kids teach me more than I teach them at this point. Like there was a point where I felt like I was the, you know, in charge of the, and knowledge and, and the wisdom, but now I'm like constantly deferring to them about things because they're, it, for them, it's just liquid. Everything is 
it's just moving all the time and it's everyone's jumping in and people are jumping out and it's just it's just so much more um i don't know what the right word is but just open than i i grew up with for sure and i'm a, a pretty accepting out there person i thought but then i'm learning all these new things and i'm like wow like i can only imagine how hard it is for someone who wasn't grown didn't grow up with liberal parents you know and didn't have friends who were gay and you know, there's just things that kind of prepared me to have kids who are, you know, my daughter's not uh, uh, asexual. Uh-huh. And so like all these things that I, I'm, I'm kind of prepared for because I had these other experiences growing up and I had parents who were, you know, out, you know, a little bit out there with their politics and stuff and not, not the typical conservative Idaho that you expect. Right. Um, but I, I, if, if you didn't have that, then I imagine it's, it's pretty paradigm shattering. It's, it's probably not an easy thing to, to wrap your mind around. It can be difficult for people to, I mean, like everyone has to go through a different journey when they first hear about certain things and mm-hmm. in a lot of people, and this is the discourse you frequently see online, is they remember their very first sex education class when they were in elementary school, when they got separated from where they split up the boys and girls and mm-hmm. the boys went into the gym or whatever. And the girls learned about periods. And then we all had, you know, like our respected gendered conversations. And then that's all they remember about gender. Like they just yeah. didn't add anything else. So if you bring, even if you bring it in, mind you, the discourse around uh, how uh, trans people are treated by medical staff, treated legally, there have been experts studying this for a really, really long time. So we have all of the experts on the side of the trans people. But since a lot of people just don't accept information, we can know that just from COVID, none of that means anything in the argument. And they're just like, no, boy, girl, that's it. And they just don't, they're just not willing to accept anything else. So there's always this discourse of like, uh, why do you care? And they just do. They care a lot. You know, it's important. Um, my best my best friend is uh, transgender. Well, I have a couple best friends. One of them's gay, one of them's transgender. But uh, she teaches me a lot. I had a hard time with the debate about um, trans uh, girls in sports. I had a hard time with that. Like thinking, well, is, is it going to be fair? Because their body, you know, the body of a typical male a uh, person born male is going to be stronger and more muscular and the cardiovascular system is going to be better. I mean, there are just things that men are better developed to do. Um, and I had a hard time and she explained about the um, hormones and how it changes your body. And, um, uh, and that really, Oh, okay. So then they are more equal to uh, cis girls. There are, there's um, actually a joke online that a lot of trans girl women make about how quickly they, they couldn't open pickle jars anymore. <laughs> That's funny. But it's psychologically <laughs> damaging. Imagine having an ability your whole life and then embracing and experiencing gender euphoria. And gender euphoria is when you experience something in gender that makes you feel good about your gender, which is, it's usually applied to trans people, but I guess it could apply to cis people. If you do something that makes you feel a lot happy to be a woman, that's technically gender euphoria. Yeah. So yeah. I have that all the time. <laughs> right. The, uh, the, the, that issue is really complicated, but once again, we have all the doctors and scientists already that have already spoken on it. So if people are open to information, you can just give them that information and be like, yeah, the reason it's like this is because doctors and scientists are on the job and it's not up mm-hmm. to us on the ground. Like, I don't know why everyone thinks they should have an opinion on those matters. 
when you have things like that, they're framed in a way of defending. They're always acting like, well, we have to protect our girls. And I know this is going to sound mean to all the jocks, but to be honest, whoever wins, it doesn't matter. It's high school. If you're a great athlete and they're looking for great athletes, they'll still get you if you're second and you're fast. Like that's not a big deal. You know, like, it, people, yeah, I don't know if that's true. I, I did sports in high school and it mattered a lot. Yeah. It, it was a big part of my life. But it's, it, it does, but it's not anything. It's so much less important than gender. It's not even funny. Like you can find other ways to succeed and gain value in yourself and learn teamwork and all that cool stuff. There's no path for somebody else to become who they're supposed to be. So it's just, it's like, yeah, but it's a bonus that's culturally, even athletics is just culturally constructed. There's, they, they fulfill needs. But people always act like this is super important. It's just like, yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's still just sports. You know what I mean? Like you're not saving lives, which this gender thing is about suicide prevention. So it's not, it, yeah. to me, it's just like, if you can't play basketball, you might kill yourself. But if you, if you, if we don't let you be a woman, there's a really good chance that's on the table at some point. Trans people attempt suicide a lot. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. I think the reverse thing can be said, though. If it's not a big deal, then then why why make it a big deal? Well, gender's a big deal, uh, but like they, they yeah. only care because they care. Well, I, to be honest, what it is, is they're just using the sports to justify it. They don't really care about that stuff because that's the only time you see them talking about girls in sports. Yeah, it's it's the new come on, your hammer that they're using to. Right, like the, the, the women's soccer team in the United States is worlds better than the men's, but they get no support and almost no pay and a lot of times they don't even get paid if they don't win and the men's team gets all the money and all the attention and these people are never out there talking about how badly we need to make sure that the women in sports get treated better because they don't really care they just they just the idaho law makes it legal for a non-medical adult to look at your child's genitals and to me that even without gender that's nightmare that they are, they, that's the one they... Yeah, they don't do that. They can't do that anymore. Now they just have to get a note from the doctor. Well, thank God. But even that's, yeah. it's so weird. Like It's still, it's still, it's still like really like, I get it. But yeah, when, I was horrified when I thought, when I, when I heard that they started out with, you have to get a physical examination. I'm like, are you trying to traumatize these people? Like, what the hell? They just don't. Yeah, I just, their priorities, like... A lot of the arguments that you hear around the trans conversation, uh, they, they try to frame it like they're defending themselves, you know, because mm-hmm. they know that it's a, it's a much more difficult sell to, to be like, well, well, let's just talk about you the whole time. Because at some point, people do figure out that I don't really care what this person says about other people because who gives a, who cares what this person says? So they want to make it about mm-hmm. the religion or they want to make it about girls' sports, you know, like, and that's just, to me, it just seems like they're looking for a reason to have the argument and it's never in good faith. Like they never, they never, uh, meet you halfway or have a conversation. It's just very much like, no, you can't do this and we are not going to let you. And they act like pretty big dicks about it a lot of the time. And they just don't, I just have a hard time understanding why you care about something that has nothing to do with you. That's, that's where I always end up. I've never seen anyone bring up a reason where a non-trans person had a right to an opinion. It's like, okay, well, this doesn't, this isn't about you. Like, why should you even, like, 
it doesn't matter, but you know, everybody always feels like they get to have an opinion on everything. So, well, it's definitely a hot, um, a controversial hot. Bit. Well, it's, well, in Idaho, I guess it's not controversial because most people just support it. But uh, it's it's one of those things that makes it hard to live here because it's I want to love my state, but they so many stupid, stupid, idiotic things happen here. Yeah. And the conversation is evolving constantly. I don't have access to all of it. There's a lot of the discourse and language and stuff evolves. Some of it's even regional. So I just wouldn't have access to most of it. So it it can, uh, you know, like answers in the trend, when you're talking about anything uh, like this, it just, you have to understand that a lot of the information shifts around a lot and can't necessarily be because, and something I say now might not be even considered true by any of us in two months like sometimes we have one big conversation and then everyone goes, okay, yeah, let's do it that way now. Yeah. It's, it's quickly evolving. One of the reasons, I guess I always feel insecure when I'm talking about the subject because it's, it changes so often. It feels impossible to keep up with. Yeah. But if you're, if you're, if you're operating in good faith and you're honest about what your limitations are and that you're trying to do better, generally speaking, most people will be interested. I mean, you do run into a lot of people who do the sea lining, but that's not, you can usually figure that out right away. I was going to ask you about that. What sea lining? Where does that come from? I haven't heard that expression. Okay. No, I only know this because I argue on the internet all the time. So sea okay. lining is when somebody comes in with the phrase, well, let me just ask you this. And then they get all like legalese or some dumb, or they ask you to define something 20 times. And what they're doing is they're engaging you in an argument without conflict. It's basically like quicksand. They just want to wear you down and get your energy. Like, when people who ask you to define things, they can just look up in a Google search. That's always the line. It's like, why do I need to tell you something, idiot? You have a cell phone in your hand. Like I'm not doing homework for you, which is a word I use a lot in these conversations. And you know, and I call it out and that's the phrase that I don't know where the phrase came from, but that's the phrase that we generally use referring to someone who's making those, those arguments just because they want to have that conversation. And it's just like, man, you know, I, I, I understand that we do need to focus on educating people, but the people I want to help educate are the people who are interested in learning. I don't want to have to like, it's not my job to convince people to learn things. Like I'm not getting yeah, paid. There's only, <laughs> only certain people that, that I'll talk to online anymore. Like they have to have a certain amount of in, intelligence and a certain amount of tact and yes. respect. Otherwise it's just a waste of time. It's like, what's the point? You're not, you're going to say a bunch of stuff that's not true. And then you're going to tell me to Google it. And I'm not going to want to find out that, you know, take the time to Google all the bullshit you just threw at me. And this why even have the conversation. I'll just ignore you and block you because that's easy. And to be honest, that's what I recommend people do. If you don't have the spoons for it, you're not conflict fixated or like if conflict's expensive for you or, you know, you can, there's, you don't owe these people anything. You don't have to argue with any of them. So if you're ever having one of these conversations with somebody and they just decide to, I don't know, you don't even need a reason to be honest. It's your life. Just stop talking to them. Yeah. Sometimes I'll argue with them just because I, the people reading it, they'll benefit from it. That's where I come from. Hearing the back and forth. Yeah. That's actually where all my social stuff really comes from is I'm not there to have conversations with you. What we're doing is there's a lot of people who aren't closed minded who are listening. So when I define a thing, or when I say a thing like, well, this is sexist, then even if everyone around me says it's not sexist, there's people around who aren't sure or who agree with me, but can't speak up. And that's why I, I get so con- conflict driven on online is there's somebody has to say it. 
like you can't just let these people say anything they want to like, cause at some point they'll start saying even worse things. And that's also how we got to some of this political discourse. Yeah. Sex is a super duper trigger for me. I'll argue about that every single time. Yeah, but I've a lot, I have a lot of scar tissue from sexist assholes all throughout my life at work and everywhere. So now I'm just like fearless about it. And you're really educated on the subject and you've experienced it. Like you're one of the people who is definitely equipped to have that conversation. Like I have never experienced life as a woman. So anything I advocate for it, there are always people around that are more qualified to talk about it than I do. I might know the language, but I can't speak. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. Even at my most femme, I'm still six feet tall. I'm still hairy. You know what I mean? Like mm. people might try to attack me, but in my position, the biggest insult they can come up with is trying to call me a man. And I don't know anybody who thinks being called a man is an insult unless they're really not trying to be taken for a man. But I mean, like just as an insult, that's a weird insult. Oh, you mean the people who run everything? Yeah. Big deal guy. <laughs> Real big insult. So yeah, it's just non-binary also does throw off a lot of the arguments, you know, like they'll talk about body autonomy and like letting people do stuff. But when you bring out things like non-binary, a lot of the same people, especially terse, who a lot of them argue that they're doing what they're doing to protect women. And then you're like, okay, well I experienced gender as a non-binary person and they don't like that either. <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> I bet not. There's a lot yeah, there, there's always, the conversation is never ending. It's always evolving and it's totally okay to take breaks. Yeah. Especially in quarantine, it's been, you're never really away from it. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> you got to take mental health breaks often. I do. Oh, I, Sometimes I just shut my Facebook down for a whole day and don't go on there and don't look at it. That is, uh, honestly, it's a good idea. I mean, it's one of the ways I You're like, you sound kind of guilty. Like I'm never going to do that. I use it to just, I, <laughs> as somebody pointed out, like I'm one of those uh, ADD kids that used books when I was growing up, you know, to right. escape. And now I just have better ways to disassociate. And so I might feel bad that I don't read a book every two days, but also I'm, I'm constantly absorbing information. Like I'm right. always online. I'm always socially connected. I don't need to read all those books because I have a bunch of other information coming into my face all the time. Hey, I wanted to ask you too about social media because you're super duper transparent and open with your mental health on social media. What has that experience been like for you? Yeah. And to be honest, I feel like I use social media as a medium to express things. And over time, this has meant that I have drawn people into my orbit uh, first in MySpace, which is where we met, and then yeah. more so in Facebook because it's been around for so long, where people who support me are just available. So right before we uh, started this interview, I needed validation. So I took an edited selfie and I posted it saying, I need validation. And <laughs> people just give it to me. Like it, it, just to communicate a need. And it's not even a great need. I'm addressing it before it becomes an insecurity or a problem. Because I already know that. That's one of those coping mechanisms. Identify the problem, find ways to cope. And one of the ways that I cope is by having people in my circle uh, that are willing and, and want to be supportive of me. So when I write, you know, like a 400 to a thousand word post or whatever, explaining or experiencing or, or just 
just being in a really negative place. Not everybody can interact with it. I like that, but they're still there. You know, they'll still heart react or they'll still, when I'm come cause I always come out, you know, and it doesn't take too long. They're always there to like help, you know, just be there when I come back. So I actually find that if you have the audience, it's a very, it can be very healthy because I am just open and transparent. And then people have an opportunity to interact with that. And almost nobody is negative. And if they are, I just get rid of them. Right. They're just postage stamps with opinions. I only know a handful of these people, you know, and like, because of social media, they believe they know me better than they do. But that also means that they treat me better than they would a stranger. So I get benefits. People just send me money. If I mention I need cash, I don't do that often anymore for that reason. But like, if I just go, damn it, I have to buy like one time I had to buy a tire and someone just sent me 250 bucks just because she appreciated who I was online and she wanted to be supportive of that. I had that happen too. And I got, um, I had a brain injury recently and I didn't have the money to, I can't remember what it was I needed. It was like 200 bucks and I wasn't even trying to get money at anybody. I was just like, I I was just crying and frustrated and having a, you know, a a stressed out moment. And I posted about it and someone just sent me the money. That means how much do you need? 200 bucks. There you go. And I was like, holy crap. And I, I, I still haven't had the means to pay them back because I mean, with the coronavirus and everything, every, my hours have been cut and it's been really hard getting by. But man, just the, I felt so like overwhelmed with gratitude and just so appreciative that they did that for me. But they said, hey, I appreciate who you are. I like what you're all about. I like what you have to say on, on Facebook. I think it's healthy and positive. And so here you go. No problem. It's basically a mirror of that. Uh, I don't always necessarily feel like it's the healthiest thing to do. And I definitely give myself permission to delete anything, whatever I want. If I don't think something's healthy to have out there, I'll switch it to only me so that no one else can see it. But I still have access to all those words. I do that too. Yeah. And like, it's also actually been one of the few ways as someone with ADHD that I have been able to keep track of the data points of how my mental health is doing. Yeah. Because, you know, and the psychiatrist goes, well, how have you been? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, why would I remember that? I didn't write it down. Like, you know, and in and keeping track, like, you know, I tried the apps, you know, I tried things, you know, and they'll even prompt me and I'll, then I'll just be like, I don't want to do that right now. They'll be like, Hey, how are you doing today? I'm like, I'm not talking to you right now, phone. Like, <laughs> So that's at least a way where I can be like, well, this is clearly because I recognize the state I'm in when I write something because I know myself. But I also believe that my vulnerability and uh, is one of the things that's common on because I don't believe people, I believe people are messy by nature. We are not perfect creatures. And the expectation of that is one of the ways we harm ourselves. Instead of just a very honest, we all fuck up. We all slip up. We all make mistakes. We're all wrong. Nobody should be on a pedestal. If somebody is doing well, that's great. If someone backslides, we try to be helpful. If someone chooses a a bad path continually and refuses to fix themselves, you just get them, get rid of them out of your circle so they don't hurt you and others around you. So like, And that's a process. But if someone goes away and fixes themselves and there's no victims around for them to affect, I let people back into my life. Because if I'm the only victim, I'm the only one that knows the damage that actually exists. Yeah. So like in the, uh, especially when it comes to like the sexual assault advocacy, which I'm, you know, because that's a really big issue in the comedy community. 
not on the famous levels, but it does come out that someone like Louis CK, a very popular comic will be honestly accused of something. And, and you'll see because he's beloved, how much people fight for him. Like Bill Cosby sexually assaulted over 40 women on record which means you know the number is way higher. Yep. And I was telling the joke at the time that I know that I have never sexually assaulted anyone, but if 40 women said I did, I wouldn't even believe myself. Like I just, there's no way 40 women who don't know each other. Like that just doesn't happen. So for this, the thing is we want to care about the victims. So we let people just know whatever is going on with them. We let them find a way and pass the redemption, but we don't let them around the victims anymore. So like I do try to do that with the mental health thing as well, because, uh, you know, if me or somebody else is going through something. I try to create that space where they're allowed to be in that painful place. And I try to be as supportive as I have the space for it. And that has been a thing that I have had to learn to deal with a lot more because I manifest these things. People are comfortable manifesting them around and towards me. Mm-hmm. So I, I get a lot of this in messages. You know, I get a lot of people reaching out because I deal with my own stuff and it's difficult because I'm not always, because you know, I'm not a mental health professional, you know, like I'm just some person, <laughs> like, yeah. but I do try to do my best, you know, and that's, it's, it's difficult, but that's the only, it's not a negative, but that's the only, that's the biggest struggle of being open about this is it does bring that energy into your space. If you're going to talk about having problems, those people are going to be like, I have that problem. Oh, it's great. And people want to bond. So, you know, like other people who struggle with the things I do will sometimes want me as a resource. And uh, I do my best. <laughs> I do my best. Yeah, it's good to have some places you can point them to. If you're not yeah. able to be there for them for that. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, we try to be, I try to be, we try to focus on making healthy decisions as often as people can. And then when people can't, we try to help them when they can, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, I I have a really good friend, uh, who, uh, who has some emotional issues where she loses control of her emotional center and cries. And, uh, she, this only happens every one, like great once in a while, but she has permission to call me because I can talk her down. You know, like I'll have her laughing within 20 or 30 minutes. Whereas if she's just left to her own, she might just cry all night. So like, and that's the thing I can do because we have that relationship because we're close because she trusts me. Yeah. Because I'll just listen until she stops blubbering long enough for us to start talking. And then I will translate what she's whimpering. And, and none of this is negative. This is just how her brain works. And because I'm not in a judgmental space, uh, I'm able to be helpful to a friend. And so I don't turn away from those things and I do volunteer for some of it, but I, but like everyone else, there's only so much energy I have for that because it is a heavy burden to be a part of somebody else's mental health journey, especially while you have your own. Yeah. And it's like, you have to have an agreement up front with those um, kind of people that if either of you is not feeling up for it, that it's okay to say that like, Hey, right now I'm feeling low energy or I'm feeling down myself. I just can't right now. Right. And you have to have that kind of relationship, you know, like limits and healthier, you know, like this has got to be weighed out. Like, you know, I've had friends, I had a friend for a while, uh, where, uh, uh, she would have these mental health episodes, very common. And she had a rotation of friends. So if somebody couldn't help her, she would just go to the next person in line until it was like a community support circle. And 
And it is smart to a certain degree. Like I definitely don't see anything negative with any of it as long as it's functioning. Uh, my only issue with this individual was that if I needed things, she was never accessible. Oh yeah. See, that's not cool. <laughs> but that's fine. And that's one of the reasons I think we eventually grew apart is like with this, we're talking like this pattern exhibited itself for years and I don't actually need others very often. Like I don't reach out. Like I just don't like I deal with it. And it's not always great, but I mean, the odds of me reaching out to someone if I need help are almost zero. Mm -hmm. Like, and a lot of that it's being socialized as a man for so long. And a lot of it is just surviving it long enough that I already know how to handle it. Like I did it the hard way. And like, I would prefer everyone have access to help, but there are pathways for some people to learn how to cope with less support because that's just the only way that you can survive. And I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but it is a thing that I have learned, unfortunately. So one of my other bigger challenges is knowing where my limits are because I just don't believe, like, no, I'm not dead yet. Like, and after everything that I've gone through and all the stuff that's happened to me, I'm actually better than I've ever been. That's awesome. It, it, it's just a thing. I think a lot of people are resilient. I don't have judgment for people who spiral or, or you know, or don't, because there are a lot of times I might not have made it. But like, you know, I mean... Sometimes it's just one of that miss that messy thing. You know, you, you put two people through the same scenario, you know, like a, like a very violent event, like a shooting and somebody might have uh, PTSD the rest of their lives every day, large noises. They have names for all these conditions and that's just the thing they deal with. And whereas the person standing right next to them who maybe even got shot might just float away from it and be fine. Like, and we just can't predict the brain and how it comes out because we just don't know. There's no way to know all the pieces. Yeah. Just to try to be helpful to people that need it. Cause there's just a lot. I don't think people really understand the percentage of people that are dealing with severe issues, especially with all the pressure that we have living in the society that we've created. Oh, it's a lot. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death. And it's not going to get lower. Like there's yeah. no mental health really available. Like we were talking about earlier and the pressures of capitalism and what we expect of people I mean, just look at now, all these people out there who are barely making it now have no options. They're not going to get any more money from the government. Some people never received their unemployment. So they're at the position where my Frags literally was like, look, uh, we're spending all of our money because I can't even find work. And she's willing and hardworking. But even if every job opening right now hired two people, there would be millions of people who still needed work. Yeah. They're just... And the system isn't designed to help those people. So if you're already struggling and then something like, and not to mention pandemic exhaustion is a real thing. Yeah. Like anybody overloaded right now, my go-to reaction is yes, that, that is, that is what's happening. Like for sure. Like if anything, people with traumatic lives like myself are more equipped for these things because my life has been so screwed up so often. I'm like, oh yeah, this is just two years of not being, of being depressed basically. Like I don't get to hang out with anybody or do anything. I've done this before. I know. I felt that way to me too. I'm like, oh, this is just like normal for me. I used to be yeah. super duper social and I'd go out all the time and hit the town like every night of the week. And then nowadays I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to stay inside and go karaoke once a week, which I really do miss not going to karaoke. I have to admit it's, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it yeah. was my outlet. It was my, you know, my coping, my get all this energy out activity that I did. And now I don't have that anymore, but now I podcast. So there you go. Yeah. Plus karaoke is fun. <laughs> and like one of the, like I basically just taken a 
stand. I'm just standing away from stand up. I'm not doing any comedy. Either are people. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't do the Zoom shows. It, it does work for some comics, but my stand up set at this point is basically a weaponized version of ADHD, where mm-hmm. I spontaneously do 45 minutes of comedy without preparing. And I don't think I'd be capable of that without this brain. Like I just don't. Yeah. I just not. Most comics don't do that. Like Patrice O'Neill did it to a, to a certain point. And like Rory Scovel, who is still was super funny, by the way, does a lot of it because it's a combination of crowd work and impulses. So when I go on stage, I have a few jokes and I do write new jokes. I will forget to tell most of them every set though, because I, I don't, I can't remember. So I just go up and I start talking. And if a joke comes up on a sub, I have subjects I talk about. I talk about gender and sexuality and a lot of really big adult things. I have a whole bit where I explain sexual fetishes to straight audiences and, uh, and just, you know, just in fun, like, Hey, did you guys know people do this? <laughs> because people are weird <laughs> about sex, but it's, I mean, people like these are health, there's healthy ways to do a lot of crazy stuff. And, uh, but all of that has to come off the top of my head. The funniest things I've ever said have been the result of me just allowing my brain to say whatever I want. But that also means that I'm not prepared for a comedy world like now where I don't have an audience to play off of because yeah. the things that come out of my mouth are 100% determined on my mood matched with the people who are there. Yeah. So if it's a, if it's a bunch of old ladies, I'm ready to go. I'll change, I'll tone, I'll, I'll code switch. I'll be more polite. I'll still be me, but like, I'll be a much, I'll be talking to a bunch of older ladies. I, I'll start talking about my health problems. Like I'll, there are ways to be relatable to anybody. Yeah. If you're, you know, and so, but I, so like, I, but the idea right now of picking up a, a microphone that a bunch of random people have had in their mouth, uh, it disgusts me. Like I could not, I'm not a germaphobe until now, you know, like, yeah, so it's, so, I mean, that's just one of those things where I'm just allowing the anxiety to have the choice there because I don't feel like it's healthy and not to mention, I'm not going to be responsible for bringing people out to a show that kills somebody, you know, yeah. like, because even if we all sit six feet apart from each other, people have drinks, people go out and smoke together. People go out and leave in their cars at the same time. You know, like even if like, if there's 40 people in the audience, there's going to be 20 people that are within six feet of each other easily with, by the end of the night. And I just don't, I see the vector and I'm just not going to be responsible for it. I'm, I'm just glad they closed the bars down because I have no willpower and I, I could not stop going to karaoke. <laughs> I, I, well, well I, there's a couple things that I do. Like, uh, there's actually this little uh, chain place called Romeo's across the uh, across the street where they have a little happy hour where I can get a five dollar drink, which for Seattle is really cheap, and the bar's always empty. So, like, uh, the bartender knows my name. You know, I say the order, he drops it off. We don't talk, and I that way I can at least have like a drink. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there's none of the social context. You know, like. That that part is difficult to replace. And, you know, when you do like Zoom, you know, meetings with your friends or, you know, the feeling after they leave almost feels more empty because you've been socializing, you know, because then you just go back to not socializing in that. And then you really feel that negative space. And that's another reason I don't do a lot of Zoom calls. I've noticed that too, just doing the podcast. I've been scheduling more podcasts. Um, that normally I would just do one. I mean, this podcast is still pretty new, but I, I, I've been doing, trying to get more and more of them going. And I'm like, wow, why am I scheduling so many? I just need to chill out, <laughs> but I miss the social interaction and it's social. It's not work. You know, I'm not talking about my, or, or my, I'm not here to, to take care of you. 
I'm here to talk to you about mental health, but I'm not taking care of you. It's different. Yeah. It's a, it, I think it's, I think it's pretty great. Like I'm, I'm going to start like an online D and D campaign, <laughs> which is one of the ways that I used to socialize was get good friends together. And I'm always the DM. And I really like that. I think in a BDS terms, I'm what you would call a service top. Like I, I want people to feel good and have a good time. And my few organizational skills work towards making that happen for people because that's value for me, mm-hmm. you know, creating a social experience that other people enjoy. It's one of the things I actually like about comedy as dark as my, as cause I try, I go through a lot of the, I use a lot of my pain on stage, you know, very wry and, you know, like, you know, like a lot of people who have been broken can be, but it is to me, generally speaking, the universe is ridiculous the fact that anything exists is just silly. And I find a way to laugh at it because it's hard to take any of this seriously. Like it's so ridiculous. And it, it just, the pain is real and the emotions are real, but the underlying facts are just silly. Like pigeons are full of cities are full of pigeons because we brought them over here for communication. And then when we develop better communication, we just let them go. So, I mean, that's just, and pigeons are everywhere now and I love them. They're beautiful animals. But to me, that's funny. Like that used to be how we talked to each other and now they just <laughs> hang out on telephone. Like, and, and I just, and that's one of the things, like I've just acquired these facts. Really, yeah, that's just fun to know. <laughs> these little birds funny. bobbing everywhere. Like, yeah, that's just, and the world is full of that. And you just, you don't see it very often, but it's, it's one of the things that I think comedy is healthy for why we like to laugh so much because laughter itself is a release of tension and that tension can be dug out. As a comic, you're basically assisting people sometimes by surprising them or talking about things they didn't know or or like observational comedy, just pointing out a thing you didn't think of a certain way and then being like, Hey, that's silly. Right. And you're like, actually it kind of is. Yeah. So that's been helpful for my mental health journey too, is as time has gone on and I have progressed, I've spent a lot of my adult life doing stand-up. And even though I don't do it professionally and I don't tour very much at all, and I don't even perform all the time, uh, I still engage them often enough to get the benefits out of it. You know, and now I'm actually in a place where I'm the older experienced person and I'm very casual and confident because there's nothing bad that can happen to me. I have bombed enough times that I don't really bomb anymore because I, the, a lot of it's results upon the comic and I just never surrender because mm-hmm. worst case scenario, I'll just change subjects. The audience doesn't care if you stop, admit it's not working and then go in another direction. They actually want you to do that. So like if, a lot of comics, it's their ego that causes them to keep digging a hole because they don't want to give up. It's like, look, if I'm just talking about a thing and no one's into it, I'll point it out and be like, guys, want to talk about chickens? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and the yeah. audience goes, yeah. Sure. And then I had no idea I was about to say chickens. Even now that just happens. And then I go, okay, what do I got about chickens? And then, and then maybe chicken saying will work as a segue for two minutes until something else comes up. Or maybe I'll talk about chickens for 10 minutes and three really funny things will come out of it because the audience will say somebody will be raising chickens and I'll make a joke about raising chickens. And then that creates a moment that everyone knows wasn't scripted. Like I'm surprised as anyone else what I just said. (laughs) <laughs> and that's funny. <laughs> and I do miss that, but it, it is useful now because now I'm the older experienced person. So when I go in, like one of the photos we were looking at for you to use was a hostel show I did. They can't advertise the hostel show. It's run by my friend, Timmy and his wife. 
because it's in a hostel and, uh, but the people in the hostel can go. So we show up and it's just random people living in a hostel in Seattle. So they're just there temporarily. And we have to go through and invite people personally right before the show. So you only get like a couple people because it really is, Hey, we, we have a theater downstairs and we're just going to tell some jokes. You want to show up? And, uh, the few people who do always have a good time, but for a young comic, that's a very hard audience. Nobody's laughing. Cause when you're sitting in a room by yourself, you're not going to laugh as hard because you're very self-conscious. Yeah. And because I know you're self-conscious, I don't need you to laugh anymore because I can tell by your face if you think something is funny. Right. That's all I need is feedback. Whereas, but a less experienced comic who's more focused on themselves, they might not have that brain space free to notice what the other, what the audience is dealing with individually. Whereas with an experienced comic, and some of this is ADHD, I can talk and listen to somebody chatting in the audience and then segue. This is how I deal with hecklers. If a table's talking, I will tell a joke I know and my brain will listen to their conversation long enough for me to then switch into their conversation mid-sentence. <laughs> Just mid-sentence, have an opinion about what she said. So I'm not guilting anybody. I mean, I am, but I'm not doing, I'm not bringing negative energy into the space where the audience feels bad. So I'm not yelling at anyone. It makes everyone happy. And they usually stop talking. Because that's super embarrassing that I mentioned Janet. You, you, you were just talking about Janet. I'm like, Janet's a bitch, isn't she? And they'll be like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Oops. So yeah, so that has actually been really beneficial in my career in that because it's a chaotic environment by nature, stand-up and ADHD actually go well together pretty well, I find. Unless I, I would make an excellent audience member in the hostel situation because I have an I was born with an inability to muffle my laughter. I sound like <laughs> a seal having a heart attack. Like oh, it's good. really embarrassing, but it's super fun. I find stand-up comedy super duper therapeutic because I love to laugh. Yeah. It's, it's really healthy. I find, uh, I recommend that people find new ways to laugh if they can, mm -hmm. you know, there's no shame in it. Like and a lot of people, especially now feel like comedy has to have victims and it doesn't, it doesn't at all. It can, and it can even be funny. But you, one of the things about comedy is what direction are we laughing? Are we making fun of the weak or are we taking power away from the power? And that's, what's funny. Like if you're holding a microphone, you're allowed to talk about anybody powerful. And that includes you because you have a microphone. So you could, that's like, there's a lot of comedy. Then I start on that a lot myself. It, it teaches the audience not to take that. I don't take myself seriously. I'm the first to admit all my faults. This might also have come from social media. I just admit I'm a mess. And it turns out it doesn't change how people feel about me. Mm -hmm. Like it might change some of the things that happen in my life, like with relationships or with jobs or whatever. But if, if you're friends with me, I'm just going to be honest about who I am and what my faults are. I know what they are. I have a lot of them. And uh, that helps us. You know, I feel like my journey through mental health and being honest about it in social media and on stage has given me the ability to just be really open about the things that me and others struggle with. And then that gives other people the opportunity to either learn or to admit that they have these same problems. And that itself can be an act of, of community healing. Absolutely. Well, in closing... Do you have any advice that you would give someone who is recently diagnosed or maybe um, is struggling with something they think is mental illness? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, first off, you're lucky in the effect that you live in a time period where information is so accessible to you. And while it can be a struggle for a lot of people, queers, people of color, 
almost every woman to get good medical care, you do have the opportunity to find out of find other people who struggle with these things to find facts. You know, like a lot of the best advice you can get for your mental health if you've been diagnosed is people who have had it for years and are okay. You know, people who are like, Hey, this works for me. It might not work for you, but I do this. And some of those things will help you eventually. (laughs) You know, you just, you have to keep an open mind. Uh, Another thing I find that helps is see, and and basically my best advice is finding a community because if you're struggling with something, other people who have struggled with it or struggle with it are going to be way more empathetic to what you're struggling with than a well-intentioned friend who just has no idea what you're doing. You know, like if people, like if I know someone with a stutter, I am going to do everything I can to be as compassionate, but I'm not going to be as good at it as somebody who also has a stutter. That's just never going to happen. Like, and it's just how the world is. So I feel like one of the best things that you can have if you're diagnosed now is finding other people and maintaining limits, of course, like you do have to have boundaries, but it's really easy now to find groups and support circles. Like there's a support group of in Facebook for everything. There's more than one and yeah. groups can be toxic, but you will, you might find friends or people who, who uh, you will bond with. And part, and part of that is bonding over the things that you have find in your life that can be a struggle or it can be a challenge. And that can be really helpful. I find because if other people are okay, then I can be okay. If other people can have this and be successful, then it means that I have paths that can work for me too. They might not be traditional. And I think that helps because a lot of times if you don't have a diagnosis yet, or if you don't, you just feel like you're broken and that you can't work. And then, and that itself can make you feel desperate enough to make some really unhealthy choices. But if you do have community and you do know what's going on or you're seeking a path to health, then you have more hope and that hope itself can help you become healthier because there is a light at the end of the tunnel for almost everybody. And while we will always lose people and it will always be a tragedy, we can make it so less people are lost because we can be there for each other. And I feel like that to me is much more important sometimes than uh, a lot of the rest of this. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Milstrom. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Shannon. I really appreciate you. I uh, I had a good time. Thank you. I did too. I'll talk to you soon. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.